Welcome to the Blind Spot Podcast. This is a place where conversations matter and truth matters even more. Scripture tells us to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. For when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. And anything that is visible is light. And that is our goal here today. And that's our goal here every time is to shine light on the dark places and the culture, life, etc. And bring us closer in line with God's word. So today we are going to have an interview with our friend Eric Kahn. He is the host of the Hard Men podcast. He is also co-host of two other podcasts. One is newer. It's called The King's Hall. It is excellent. I highly recommend that you check that out. And then also a wilderness-focused one called The Wilderness Warrior. I think I said that right. So it was a really fun interview. Phil and I had a blast. It was full of laughter, of really insightful information, and it was definitely hard-hitting, which is our style. So without further ado, here is our friend, Eric. Welcome, Eric, to the Blind Spot podcast. I'm super excited that you're here. I remember the first time, actually, that Phil came home and was like, you got to listen to this podcast. I just found something that's totally different. You put it on the TV, actually. He doesn't remember this story. I've asked him before. He put it on the TV, said, listen to this. And I don't remember which episode it was, but I'm sure that it had something to do with King David. I remember a King David reference and comparing kind of to modern evangelical pastors, kind of the difference between the two. You probably remember, um, but I, I don't. Yeah. Anyway, it was just transformational to us. And so can you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that is uh, that's encouraging. It's humbling, and it's also terrifying to know that I'm in people's homes, and uh, definitely uh, definitely makes me more conscientious of what I have to say. So that's good. Um, yeah. So my background, I I kind of have a mixed background, uh, college degree in journalism. So I've done sports journalism for a number of years. Uh, eventually went to seminary. Um, I thought when I was twenty that I was really mature, and I would go to seminary and be a pastor of a church. And then uh, I realized that that ripe old age of like 22. I was like, wow, probably, probably a little young for this. So, uh, I, I went back into the working world after seminary. Um, I held on to my, you know, desire to be a pastor, just kind of said like, Hey, maybe I need to mature a little and, you know, prove myself. So, um, I did that, uh, worked in the gun industry doing like hunting and shooting magazines for mm-hmm. about 10 years. Um, and also pastored, you know, concurrently with that, uh, for a couple years, three years, Um, so, and then after pastoring, this is more recent, uh, say like the last two and a half years or something like that. Um, I, I got out of the pastorate and I started, you know, blogging and then kind of, you know, these people, I'm like way behind the curve on everything. People were like, there's this thing and it's called a podcast. And I was like, sweet, I should do one of those. And literally I had never, this is like 10 years after podcast took off. So that kind of tells you. I had never actually listened to a podcast and I was like, well, I blog. Yeah. I was like, I blog and my grandma listens to that. You know, she reads that and she thinks it's really cool. I mean, (laughs) is there a new medium? And so I was like, yeah, maybe, maybe I should try this. So I, I literally, I, I was like, I really like masculinity. Um, really see a need in the church pastoring and other things. I was like, seminary was kind of an effeminate place. Mm. Um, and so I started the Hardman podcast. It, it also kind of was interesting because uh, I was working for a gun company 
and I got furloughed during COVID. And I was mm. like, well, I, three months I was furloughed. And I was like, I have to have something to do. And mm-hmm. I was thinking about masculinity. I was, re- you know, reading about it. And then, so I was like, you know what? I'm going to start the hard man podcast. Um, so I did that and it kind of took off and here we are. Yeah. Okay. Because of course I'm a female and I like the relational side. Where was your wife in all this? Like, was she like, yeah, go do it. This is awesome. You know, what was her perspective? My wife's perspective in all this has been like, so she doesn't have like social media because it like, I don't know, like Twitter. I'm always like, babe, look at what I'm getting in this fight on Twitter with these people. Look what they said. And they're like threatening (laughs) to kill me. It's really cool. And my wife's like, I don't want to know about that actually like at all. And, um, so that's kind of, you know, she's like, you go get them. Awesome. Just don't put me out there and I don't want to have to be on there and get all stressed out about it. But no, it's been mm-hmm. kind of cool. Cause she's totally supportive. Um, and really has been the whole time. Um, it takes kind of a special person, a special woman, I think to, to stand by, you know, pastor Brian Sovey and I, he's my pastor. Now we're, we're in Utah together. Brian had like a tweet blow up a couple of weeks ago on modesty. Um, I think the last time I asked him, it went over 50 million impressions. Um, we had people from like MSNBC reaching out to him. So my point is like, it, it takes good women to stand in the background and be like, yeah, so we have extra security this week at church and there might be protesters and uh, they might have pitchforks or cats. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not really sure. Or but, burning tiki uh, torches. Yeah. Just to have women who are like, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So. <laughs> I mean, just just to have a wife who is like, yes, we support you. This is biblical. Uh, we believe mm-hmm. in what you're doing. It's it's been huge. So can you unpack your tagline for the podcast a little bit? Like what is biblical masculinity and how is the world soft? Yeah, absolutely. So reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Yeah, kind of the first part was uh, it really kind of goes back to, uh, you know, Matthew chapter 11. So you have this line, uh, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. And he says that John, what he's the prototypical man, like Jesus is commending him. And he says he wasn't malikos. He's not, he's not soft. Mm. Um, that word malikos is soft or effeminate. Mm-hmm. Mm. So as I was ruminating on this, thinking about a sermon I listened to from Toby Sumter, um, I, I'm just, I'm sitting there thinking about all the literature I'd read for years about, you know, you read military literature, t- Teddy Roosevelt, um, and they all talk about the hardness of men, mm-hmm. like men need to be hard. If you want to, if you want to be hard, you got to live hard. Those are sort of military expressions. Mm-hmm. So we've had that language of hardness throughout history. Um, even, even the Greeks and Romans will talk about things like that. Um, and, and it's hardness in the sense of building calluses, right? If you're mm-hmm. a man and you lift weights, you get calluses. Um, if you strengthen your muscles, they actually go from being soft and squishy to hard. And so it, as I was thinking about these things, I was like, you know, the, the, the problem with masculinity in the church, especially, and in the world today, is that we've been highly feminized. Um, and so that's where this malicose, this softness, this effeminacy um, that I'm talking about has come in. I think a lot of it is, you know, especially since about 1970, you've had f- feminism, uh, which mm-hmm. has obviously been, you know, a predominant force in America. Combine that with Marxism. Um, I, I think now we see pretty obviously there's a concerted effort by the powers that be that the, the intellectual elites, that they actually want to degrade the quality mm-hmm. of the men in the country, weaken the household, and then the state becomes this, you know, enormous godlike entity. 
Um, so yeah, we've really sought with the podcast in all ways, political and all other, to reclaim this sense of what does it mean to be a hard man? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I had someone respond to a post I put about, you brought up feminism, about feminism and, and their, their kind of argument yeah. to what I put was that, well, not everything about feminism is bad. You know, there's some redeemable qualities. What would, what would you say to that if someone said that to you? Yeah, I would say it's a little bit like saying there's some redeemable qualities to cancer. Um, you know, I guess you lost some weight. Maybe that was a, a plus for some people. Um, but yeah, I would say overall, when, when you start digging into the movement, um, and really, I mean, I mean you can, it, it depends where you start, right? You can start at the garden. Really, uh, Eve Sin is fundamentally you know, tied to it's the first act of feminism, right? She's, uh, you know, listening to the serpent. She's usurping her husband. She's saying, I don't need no, you know, I'm a good, strong woman who don't need no man. And, uh, but, but I think even more close to our time period, uh, early 1800s into the present, uh, right. We really see that feminism, it's really a lot of, a lot of it is coming out of like the Unitarian camps or Unitarian Mm -hmm. universalism, uh, it's a really godless movement kind of from the beginning um, and really what it was trying to do. There's really nothing about it that I would say is redeemable. And, and, and I would say that the people who generally say that, like you haven't read Betty for Dan, go back and read Betty for Dan. Right. So this is the sixties and seventies. Yeah. This is a wicked woman. Like mm-hmm. she's like beating her husband and yeah. really just bad, bad theology. Betty is an atheist or was. Mm-hmm. Um, so you read what they say, read the words that come out of their mouth. And I think quickly you find out, yeah, you, you've listened to the propagandized version of feminism mm-hmm. um, and not the one that was actually uh, coming from the mouth of the feminists themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's like they believe if not for feminism, women would be in this position where they're always abused, always dominated and they look back in history and that's what they find because that's what they're looking for. They're not looking for the ways in which men protected and cared for women yeah. in the past mm-hmm. where women were shielded from shielded from the heat of what it takes to be involved in culture and politics because the men were out there doing it and women are more susceptible to negative emotion and men are not. Men are more argumentative, more disagreeable. Disagree- yeah, disagreeable. Um, if you're talking about it in Jordan Peterson's um, psychological context. So, yeah, it's, it's God's natural protection that there's a, yeah. a hierarchy and an order. And that the same order that applies in families also applies in other types of families, whether it's the, the family of civil government or church government. Um, it's all a basic social, social structure that goes from different sizes. Yeah, and that's been really something that I've tried to emphasize a lot. And this is kind of where I've drawn a lot of flack is, right? So like the, you know, there's a couple different camps, but especially like in the more conservative side, we have like soft complementarian to complementarian. And, um, you know, I've basically said like, no, I think that's actually too weak. Let's just go back to biblical patriarchy. And it's exactly the issue that you're talking about, that a lot of the complementarian camp will actually say, well, yeah, I think that men should lead in the home and the church, but that's kind of it, mm-hmm. right? So you had kind of like the Carl Trumans of the world who were mocking John Piper for saying, yeah, I don't know. I don't think a woman should be in the military. I don't think a woman should be uh, law enforcement because she's like frontline, you know, physical combat <laughs> yeah. type. 
uh, situation. And exactly to your point, that's that's would be my argument is that uh, the hierarchy is creational. Mm-hmm. And so when when you look at the structure of creation, men are leading everywhere. It's not just um, it's not just in the home and church. And I think honestly, I've noticed this even in the way that men's voices are naturally like command a room, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. So a man stands up, he's got a deep bass voice. Uh, he'll speak in political office and people typically the response is respect. I didn't know this even before I was even complimentarian or Christian, mm-hmm. but like there is something to like Hillary Clinton, oh, um, Kamala, Kamala Harris, Harris <laughs> Beth Moore. Yeah. When they speak, it's like this, they have like this screeching, I'm trying to be a man, but it, it comes off as like, just like broken glass against my soul. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not because I all of a sudden got to the patriarchy camp. It's because there's actually natural things embedded in the metaphysical reality of the universe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and one of those is that women are not made to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you have um, talked about in previous episodes that I've listened to, and you kind of just exposited this a little bit about what biblical um, masculinity is, just a little bit at least. Can you kind of contrast that with biblical femininity? Yeah, well, I, I, that's a good question. I, and I think both of them, what, what I would say, first of all, if, like if people listen to this and they're, you're reading books and you want to like, you know, what, what can I read more on this? Mm-hmm. One that I have always referenced, it's kind of a big, thick book, but it's an awesome reference book. And it's just gone back into print, but it's Stephen B. B. Clark's book. And it's called Man and Woman in Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was out of print for a long time, but really good book. And uh, he was like a Catholic scholar, um, but really combating a lot of the things in feminism. But anyway, I, I'll follow his line of thinking. I think it's really, really good. Mm-hmm. When Jesus is asked about divorce in Matthew 19, what does he say? He says, well, let's go back to creation. What did God intend? Mm-hmm. And so we can really do the same thing with sexuality. And we can say, well, let's go back to creation. Say, what did God design men and women for? So we go back there in Genesis 1, 28, and in that whole section through mm-hmm. even chapter two, we know that men are made to be on a mission, to take dominion, to be fruitful and to multiply uh, and subdue the earth, right? So this dominion, this mission, and then we have with the woman marriage, Um, So she's part, she's coming alongside to help with that mission. That mission is central for him. And it's also what the woman is being called into. Again, man, Genesis 2.15, he is to protect and provide. Again, these are very central uh, to the masculine role. And then you look at, okay, well, where do we find Eve in that picture? Mm -hmm. Well, we're told Adam calls her Eve, the mother of all living. Mm -hmm. Really central to her role in that entire passage is motherhood. So... It makes a lot of sense of why then in the New Testament do we hear Paul and Titus and Timothy talking about a woman will be saved through child rearing, right? So even when I was in seminary, you have this passage, the word is sozo, salvation, mm-hmm. and you think, how could this be, mm. you know? And and I'm like, just, you know, I had been a Christian at the time for like three years and, you know, I was... I had grown up in the culture that we live in, which is feminist mm-hmm. and gone to college, a liberal arts college. And I'm just staring at the text and I'm like, he said that she'll be safe through saved through childbearing. Like this is part of herself. And I'm sitting there going like, no, that can't be, that can't be, that cannot be what that text says. And, and so over time, right. I'm, I'm coming into the, to face these passages and you realize that is what the text says. Mm-hmm. And it makes perfect sense. If you understand Genesis one and two. Mm-hmm. So again, w- what is the predominant role that a woman is going to experience in her life? 
it's some form of motherhood. Mm -hmm. Um, people always ask me too, like, well, what if I'm, you know, what if I'm single? Well, you're still carrying out the mothering type roles. It mm -hmm. may be helping families with children. Mm -hmm. It may be participating in the life um, of the church in a little bit different way, but you're still hardwired the same way in your physiology, your mind, your emotions, all of that. Mm -hmm. And it's still going to be this nurturing type role. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the church today, we have obviously people who are identifying as like non-practicing homosexual pastors, right? <laughs> you also have people yeah. who are like leading youth groups who have pronouns in their bio, you know, all, yeah. so all this distortion of sexuality and the rules and even understanding what the sexes are. Do you have a little bit of an idea of like, is, is that, that's obviously a symptom of something greater. So how did we get to this current place that we are now? And what are some like basic steps to get us out of that to reform? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. I, I think a lot of it is just a lot of slow erosions mm -hmm. um, that have taken and, and compromises that have taken place in the church. So if you go back to even like the 1980s, John Piper, Wayne Grudem, they write their book on complementarianism. It's like 88, 89, somewhere in there. Um, they realize that there's a problem at that point. So this isn't new, huh. um, but really I think what's happened since that time frame, and I, I even have made this argument about complementarianism. I think it's a compromise. Mm. Um, it's, it's wanting to, and good men, you know, good men and wanting to confront the culture, wanting to make a stand, but also not wanting to look like fools to the feminists, um, not wanting to look like fools in the eyes of the culture. And so just over time, as you kind of, you keep kneading that bad leaven into the loaf, mm. uh, that is the church. I think what happens is we get to where we are now where pastors are like, a lot of them are totally compromised. Um, because we didn't push back against the, the gay agenda, the LGBT agenda years mm -hmm. ago. Mm -hmm. Now we're dealing with it's in your face. They're in our public schools. Yeah. Uh, you got PCA elders like David French saying things like, you know, queer story time at the library is a right. gift of liberty. Mm -hmm. um, so I think what happened, it's like anything else in life. It's just a slippery slope. Mm. Um, and I would say a lot of it too is just uh, faithlessness in, in the pulpit. Mm. I think what we've seen exposed in the last couple of years is that we have a lot of hirelings and not true shepherds who have been in places. Look, being a pastor for the last 10 years was pretty cush, especially if you're a mega church pastor, if you're Ray Ortland, if you're one of these guys, like you have a big church, you have a big platform. Uh, Russell Moore was the Dean of School of Theology when I was at Southern Seminary. Uh, he he kind of made his mm. way up to ERLC. Um, and then I think, you know, Russell, like if you read between the lines that there was an article that came out, Megan Basham did mm -hmm. on like why the evangelical establishment was, well, it, the article says because Russ Moore was in the same little snooty little intellectual book club as Francis Collins, mm. um, you know, Fauci's right hand guy, mm -hmm. um, pro abortion, pro using, you know, baby, dead baby parts to, mm -hmm. you know, make vaccines, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and, and they're in the same book club. And, and so clearly it's like, well, Russ is one of those guys. Mm -hmm. He clearly wants to impress them. So is David French. Mm -hmm. um, and, and anyway, they're hirelings. Uh, they've kind of sold out to the, the regime, as I call it. Um, so you're kind of seeing big Eva, big evangelical leaders. Um, they're hirelings. They're charlatans, right? They're not true shepherds mm -hmm. of the flock. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're not at all interested in preaching the truth. And, and I guess the last thing I'll say about it, you can kind of see this even in recent headlines, but like Christianity today we never in the church today, never 
talk about the imprecatory psalms. Mm-hmm. Like yesterday, Christianity Today, re, you know, they published an article. We should be using the imprecatory psalms, come to find out, against Putin. <laughs> and I was like, what in the world? And, and by the way, like all the talking points just happened to line up with the status shills. Mm. So again, you look at all of that and it's like, well, no wonder the church is in this mm. bad shape. They're not interested about what's true. They're not interested in God's word about homosexuality or uh-huh. the LGBT movement. They're interested in retaining power. Yeah. Well, and I'll add one other thing regarding Ukraine and Putin that I'd noticed. Um, I was surfing LinkedIn and I see people reposting. There were several different pictures of these beautiful women who are Ukrainian soldiers. And oh, look at, you know, Look at their beautiful Ukrainian women soldiers decked out in full combat gear with the helmets. Their, their uniforms were, were pretty spotless. Um, but I mean, are they going to show pictures of those women dead on the battlefield? Yeah. No. And all these, and some of the people that I saw commenting on it, I know that they're Christians or they're conservative mm-hmm. and they don't give a second thought to the idea of women in combat, which is... I mean, that's just base wickedness to send your women out to fight battles. That's what men are for. Mm. That's why we're stronger. Yeah, that's exactly right. Let me interject real quick because it reminded me of a a Keller quote from, I think it's from the the meaning of meaning of marriage movie where it's women can do anything that an unordained man can do. So that's kind of the soft complementarianism that you're talking about. And so at that point, the question is, well, why? Why can... Why is there, if, if there can do anything else, then why is there a distinction for the things in particular for ordained men? And I don't think they have a good answer other than, well, that's what God said, but why did God say that? And if you read Paul, it's rooted in the created order. It's rooted in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that God made them male and female. They're different. They have a different telos, a different purpose. Um, so naturally they would have different roles and it would be for more than just the church. Well, and the church is just, like I said, it's the church is just a, a type of family. Yeah. It's, a, it's this collection of nuclear families or extended families that are bound together in a certain particular way under a hierarchy of their elders. And so if, if God has made men the head of their households, then it makes sense that God has made men the head of churches and if societies and cultures are made of households and social groups and things like that, then it makes sense that those would be headed by men and that the civil governments would be headed by men. And yeah, I see that in a world full of sin that men can abuse their authority, but women abuse their authority in, in our current culture all the time too. So it's not like we've escaped the, the penalties of abusive Mm -hmm. leaders by letting women into positions of power. Look what Kamala Harris did in San Francisco in her role as district attorney, keeping people in prison beyond their sentences, denying parole, using people as labor to fight fires for the state, you know? Yeah. Excluding or withholding exculpatory evidence in things that she was prosecuting. I mean, that's wickedness. Just like if a man did it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, okay, so we, so one of the arguments that I often get from people, or at least that I sense they're getting at sometimes, is well, this whole like biblical patriarchy thing is just oppressive and it's restricting and it limits you. And it made me think of we both were with Camp 
Campus Crusade for Christ when we were in college. And we both went overseas um, after we graduated mm -hmm. and they don't take a stance on a lot of things. I don't know how familiar you are, you are with crew, but yeah. as a parachurch organization, they don't take a stand on certain doctrinal issues. And so when you go overseas, you have a male and female leader, right? And they meet together and like make the decisions. Well, I was the female, I was a female leader. And then there was another guy I worked with. And now looking back, I'm thinking, wow, that was really awkward that we would like go off and like meet, you know, he's like engaged to someone. Anyway, the whole thing is weird. But um, besides that, I realized how not really having any type of role that was distinct from a male made it very confusing. Like the whole the, like life in general was very confusing because I thought what, you know, I know male and female are supposed to marry men are supposed to be pastors. But what else? Like what makes me you know, different from, from anything from it, from a man. So it, that, that went into marriage when we first got married too. I was like, you know, why should I stay home or why, you know, why don't I go out now? Naturally I wanted you to go out. That was just, you know, yeah. my inclination, but I couldn't give a defense for it yeah. or a reason for it. And I, I think the natural, you know, response from a lot of females is like, why would you restrict us in that way? Because I, I don't know if you think this way, but it's so hard to unlearn, you know, how you grew yeah. up, right? You grew up with certain like central tenets to the way that you operate in society. And all of a sudden someone's telling you, well, that's not what the Bible says. And you're like, whoa, wait, I grew up in a church. I grew up with Christian people who love the Lord. Like how are you a part of a cult? You know, <laughs> yeah. where, where does this go? Yeah. And, and people really have brought that up. I, I mean, have you gotten that before where people are like, oh, this sounds like cultish. This sounds weird. Um, yeah, totally. I mean, so I've kind of had the, the gamut. Uh, my, I think my favorite title that I get called quite a bit is Christian Taliban. Um, <laughs> it's there, in fact, there was one on Twitter. I, this made me happy. They thought they were insulting me, but it made me totally happy. But, um, somebody had shared like, uh, it was like, you know, the little profile circles where it's like all the crazy you know, um, yeah. it's like who you, who you follow, interact with whatever on Twitter. Oh, I don't know what that thing's yeah. called. Anyway, somebody <laughs> posted one and they were like, they did one on like the Theo bros or something like that. Yes. And I it was like that. Doug Wilson, like Toby Sumter and like other radical cult leaders. And it was funny because somebody commented and they were like, if you want to see these guys unfiltered, you need to follow the hard man podcast. Cause this guy is straight Christian Taliban. And I was like, yeah, right on, dudes. I love that. They send the entire force of the U.S. government or all of culture yeah, to try right. to capture me. That's right. They can't do it. They can't, they do, can't it. do it. No, no empire can crush the Taliban. So, you know, yeah. some things You're to learn. You're the place where empires go to die. Eric. That's right. That's right. I, I believe that. So, but, but it is interesting because um, like Zach Garris and I have dealt with this. In fact, I have a post on my website that is... Um, I think it's like 11 lies that uh, feminists tell about the patriarchy because it really is dealing mm -hmm. with these same things, right? That people are continually mm -hmm. saying, oh, you want to oppress women. You want women to be dumb. Women aren't allowed to have an mm -hmm. education. Um, mm -hmm. You name it. And, and it, it really is brainwashing. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I can always tell that because like when I try to like reason with people, like my wife is very educated. Um, I, in fact, mm -hmm. like I was just talking to my wife today um, my son, my oldest son inherited this from her, but she reads like three to four books a week. Like she just can chew wow. through books. And so a lot of the stuff that I read, especially on the feminist side of things, is because my wife will be like, uh, this one sucks, but that one was really good. You need to read that one. 
Um, so like this idea that they're not educated or that I think the other one is that it's oppressive. People always like when my wife was on social media, they would reach out and be like, do you need help? You're like a stray cat that we need to rescue. And like, there's numbers to call. And my wife, like no one believed her, but she was like, no, I'm actually really happy um, in this, in this arrangement. And, and that is kind of the last thing I'll say about it on this question. But um, when we were first married, everybody thinks that I was like hardcore patriarchy from like the womb. Like mm. I came out of the womb with a spatula that I handed to a woman and said, make me a sandwich. <laughs> I did not do that. Um, I was like as, you know, milk toast beta male as anybody else. Um, you know, didn't really grow up with like strong father presence. I get married, you know, wasn't a Christian, become a Christian, like within the first year of marriage and like all this conflict in, in our marriage. Cause I have no idea what I'm doing. I, mm -hmm. I even go to seminary mm -hmm. and there's all this tension and conflict in our marriage because my, I, you know, I didn't even know, like my wife is working and I'm not working and I'm going to school. And, mm -hmm. you know, thank God, like an older, wiser elder in the church was like, you know, good God, man, what are you doing? Like, take care mm -hmm. of your family. Like, he just walked me through Genesis. Like, here's your roles. Mm -hmm. Here's what you need to be doing. School is important, but it's not as important as providing for your family and being a man and working. Um, and so that's when I, and so I got a job. I, you know, I did school part-time for a while, got a full-time job. My wife stopped working so she could just be full time with the kids. And I was like, wow, now we're happy. Like we stopped fighting. Mm. Um, so uh, for a lot of this stuff for me is like, it's very practical and personal because I've seen it. I've been on the other side and what people don't tell you is like even pastorally, how many mad, angry feminists have I counseled? And like, they're never in happy marriages. Their husbands aren't happy. They're not happy. So you kind of see mm -hmm. at a personal level, it's, it's very destructive. No, I was thinking about, well, the idea of softness um, and gentleness is like a very popular term yeah. that is continuously brought up in evangelicalism about, I mean, you know, the, there's been books recently that have been really popular about Jesus being gentle, being gentle, being gentle. So you've talked about this a little bit on your shows about how, yes, gentle or how Jesus is gentle and lowly, but he is also, you know, and fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that? And is this just a massive imbalance? Are they even are people defining gentleness incorrectly? Are they defining it like niceness? You know, what is the issue with this gentle term? Yeah. I mean, that's a phenomenal question. I, I, I think that, yes, um, there, there's a couple things going on. Number one. You, you really see that, that like the people from the left. So like Christian Kobez Dumez, Jesus and John mm -hmm. Wayne. Um, yes, I've read. I'm almost done reading that book. Uh, it's been a long, slow torture in the gulag. <laughs> but, um, you know, reading that book. But, but even like uh, Dane Ortland's book, Jesus Meek and Mild. Um, it, it's kind of the same. It, I, I'm not even saying like it's garbage, but like Dane's book especially like the problem with it is, is it's, it's very like one-sided. Like they only want to talk about the, the meek qualities, quote unquote meekness. And I can speak to that in just a moment. Like the gentle, soft Jesus, apparently they want to talk mm -hmm. about that, uh, but they don't want to talk about Jesus building a whip and then going in the temple. They don't want to talk about Jesus in Matthew 23, pronouncing like curse after curse, after curse, after curse 
against the religious leaders of the day. Mm-hmm. I, I would push back on that. I think they do want to talk about it, but they want to castigate people that, well, that's, that's Jesus interacting with the Pharisees. Yeah. And who are the Pharisees? It's you, <laughs> yes. it's me, it's people to the right of them. Yes. And so they're willing to, they're only willing to apply the hardness of Jesus to the right of them. Yes. And then Jesus is gentle and lowly towards the left. Yeah. And that, I think that's a really good way to put it um, because, and that's the kind of the hypocrisy of the whole thing. Right. So with the imprecatory Psalms, like they would never talk about the homosexual community in an imprecatory mm. way. They'd never talk about mm. Joe Biden and his, you know, millions of murdered babies that way. But when it comes mm-hmm. to Putin, well, now we can pray imprecatory Psalms. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah. And, th- and that's one of the things you run into in this whole thing is it, it's, it's a pick and choose, like, you know, a la carte Jesus, a la carte gospels. Um, mm-hmm. And I would even say like, okay, when, when we're reading the gospels, like we have to read all of them together. I think mm-hmm. realistically, the religious leaders of our day are much like the church in the book of Acts, the, the apostate Israelites, I should say, mm-hmm. not the church. Mm-hmm. They're much like the apostate Israelites who are in bed with Caesar. You remember when the Pharisees are putting Jesus to death. What do they say? We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you've got all the, the the big Eva people saying the same thing right now. Bow down to Caesar. Mm-hmm. You know, you mm-hmm. need to obey. And then five minutes later, Russell Moore calling Russian Christians to disobey Putin. Like wow, the 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 just madness of and and what it is is they have no consistent interpretation other than we're going to use the scripture to beat the people we don't like. And we're going to twist the scripture to uh, get what we want. And really, what are they trying to do? They're trying to make friends with the left from Tim Mm. Keller to Russell Moore. Uh, These guys have realized that's a big audience. Like it's bigger, Mm -hmm. you know, their audience is bigger than like the, you know, number of people that listen to my show, for example. Um, Yeah. I I would also say though, so, so like once you unpack some of the the words, um, most of the times gentleness is used. Uh, the word is actually meekness or praise in the New Testament, mm-hmm. including um, in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5. Well, it, meekness actually means strength under control. It was actually, the, the, believe it or not, the first time I heard this interpretation was Jordan Peterson. And I was like, what? <laughs> he doesn't know Matthew 5? What is he talking about? And I went and looked it up and I was like, Jordan Peterson is more right than most <laughs> Christian leaders. That is really sad. So, yeah. but, but it's absolutely right. Preos is a word uh, related to war horses, making a war horse. So a war horse wow. is not weak. It's not impotent. It's incredibly mm. powerful, but it's under control. And so mm. this is what Jesus is calling us to. And, and that's what you find throughout the New Testament. A- as you mentioned earlier, we're never called to be nice. There is no 11th mm-hmm. commandment of niceness or, you know, mm-hmm. being passive towards sins. And, and I guess the final thing I'll say on that point uh, John four is probably like one of the most misused passages here because the woman at the well, Oh, Jesus was so tender with her. He basically called her a whore to her face. So she's like, Hey, I have a theological question. And Jesus is like, Oh, go call your husband. And she's like, oh, I don't have one. And he goes, no, you've had five. Like that's a pretty punch you in the mouth statement. And it changed that woman's life. Like he was doing the loving mm-hmm. thing by calling out her sin. The other mm-hmm. one I think of is Jesus. When uh, they say, they're talking about Herod, you know, this is, you know, this is what Herod is saying about you, Jesus, right? We, in the English, we have, go tell that fox. Um, 
the the word that Jesus uses is the equivalent of the female dog B word that we use. So he, mm-hmm. he he's saying pretty harshly, you go tell that, you know what? Mm-hmm. You, you know, the kingdom's coming. Like it or not. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is mm-hmm. not I, Jesus is not the poster boy that the left makes him out to be, I think is the main yeah. point. So I, I actually have been <laughs> trying to read this. This is the, the Dane Ortland Gentle and Lily yes. book. I read, he blocked oh, me. Just, he blocked me on Twitter, by the way. I'm fully blocked. <laughs> I already knew that. I already told Phil. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I, I don't know this. I'm after COVID. I am more and more conspiratorial yeah. in what's going on. And so I, got, I mean, I got this book for free. I'm Crossly glad you didn't pay for like it. A hundred thousand or I don't know more than that copies of it really to churches, all, all the like church elders or pastors had to say, Oh, we want some for our congregation. And so I'm thinking like, why is this? I, I, uh, for, from what I've read so far, I would definitely have, I'd want more, more context a, a more robust, explanation of who Jesus is. I think if you talk about the very heart of Jesus is that he's gentle and lowly to the exclusion of his other characteristics, you, you set yourself up for a a weak and compromised faith. And it doesn't, it doesn't make sense in terms of other things like the aseity of God, that he's utterly self-sufficient. So how would, how would his gentleness and lowliness in the context that they're trying to use it make sense? in eternity past with the triune Godhead altogether, but self-sufficient, there is, you know, the, like the submission between the, the persons of the Trinity that the son is, the son is eternally the son, right? He issues, he's begotten of the father. He's not the father, but uh, the way that they're trying to use lowly is not the same thing as the way that the son submits to the father in that context. And so I think there's, there's just some logical problems there, but on the conspiratorial side, I'm like, Okay, so we have this massive pandemic, people telling us to close our churches and not meet because of Caesar and the attribute of Jesus, the attributes of Jesus, they're trying to emphasize and get in every more reformed or conservative evangelical church in America is that Jesus is gentle and lowly. Are they doing a psyop on us? Like, yeah, that's what it says in Matthew 11, that Jesus um, he said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Well. Is, but is that is that the message we need right now for this moment, especially to men? Yeah. No, it's stand up, steal your spine, get ready for what's going to come, and you know, be ready to to sacrifice and to to stand. So I, I don't know. I'm like, what is Crossway doing? Giving? Are, are they trying to manipulate us? And I don't know. Maybe the answer is yes. <laughs> well, I think you know. <laughs> So like in Megan Basham's article, I was talking to Megan about that the other day. Um, here's the deal. We know for a fact that on multiple occasions as COVID was just starting in 2019, 2020, we know for a fact that Francis Collins was meeting with mm-hmm. pastors and telling them what to do on social media and what to say. So some mm-hmm. of that included what Russ Moore was doing. Take your little you know, gay hobbit mask photo and be like, Oh, this little <laughs> hobbit is vaccinated. Um, like any, any man who saw that was like, that is, that's gay. That's effeminate. That is the definition of Malikos. So, and then you, and then you go back and you're like, okay, well that was actually coordinated. Um, and then, and then you, you see like the book thing with, uh, Jesus meek and lowly being promoted at exactly the same time. 
Mm. I mean, I, I think, and this is kind of where, um, you know, I was listening to Joe Booth the other day. Um, mm. He was talking about the Great Reset. This is like a year and a half ago, uh, the, the, the talk was. But he said in there, he's like, you know, everybody's like, well, don't believe in conspiracy theories. He's like, no, but these people are literally saying that this is what they're doing. So the, the other day I said, the reason that gas is so expensive is because they're trying to ram the Green New Deal down your throat, like by force. And somebody was mm. like, well, that's just a conspiracy theory. And I'm like, Pete Buttigieg and the president today came out and said, that is what we are doing. Like, and, and here's the deal. So I have a bunch of friends working in the firearms community, a bunch of friends who work in Intel. They work in, you know, military positions, special forces, that, that type of thing. COVID starts and like, we're like three months in and I've got people who are like, they work with Intel people every day on a daily basis. Okay. And they're saying to me, Hey brother, just so you know, this is more of a psyops than you think it is. Like we're watching what's mm. happening and the plays that we run to overthrow countries like Ukraine on a normal basis, they're doing here. So you, you, you look at those things and you say, okay, well, here's some fascinating, drop a little fascinating knowledge. You know, we're, we're off the rails here, but it's all connected. Herbert Marcuse is one of the founders of critical race theory in America. Marcuse, when he came over from Germany after you know, you know, being in that horrible situation comes over here. He teaches at colleges, but who does he work for? He works in the propaganda department at the CIA. Mm. That's a fact. You mm. can look that up. Like that's open mm. source. And so all the plays being run, I mean, it's all, it's all interconnected to this, this whole thing. So I don't think it's a stretch to say mm -hmm. there's some intentional effort here. Like three years in, if you're still going like, I don't know, I think they're just nice guys who are misled. I don't think that's true at all. Are, is it, are you saying, well, obviously in, in response to Phil's point, but also that there's more people that are probably intentional about this than we might yes. think? Okay. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely the case. And especially like, again, Megan Basham's article, it was like they caught these people doing it. Yeah. I, I think the problem, though, is, is most Americans don't know who Russ Moore is. They don't know who Francis Collins is. They've never heard of David French. So it's like a blessing mm -hmm. and, a, and, and a curse. In one sense, like a lot of people are being influenced by them. Mm -hmm. But the blessing side of it is like, you know, I was down south the other week and I'm like, man, can you believe what the gospel call? And, the, and they were like, you listen to them? <laughs> like, I was like, well, yeah, and I don't agree with them. But I, th I think that's probably the good news. The problem, though, is like pastors will go preach that stuff. And it's like this trickle down effect, right? Like you kind of start asking yourself, how is it that like when the Ukraine thing dropped, for example, every single mass media outlet had the exact same story, the exact same everything. How is that even possible? I mean, to say yeah. that that's orchestrated is not a leap, but then to look at all the Christian leaders and they had the exact same talking points. Like I, the first day that that story broke, I was like, something's wrong. Mm. Like, Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, like Russ Moore is like Mr. Anti-Christian Nationalism is like, you know, we need to support Ukraine. They're a sovereign nation. What? <laughs> I have watched like, the last three nation? years. Yeah, yeah. And also, also, did we not just overthrow their government in 2014? <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of how you um, interact 
about these topics. You know, you're obviously very present on Twitter, you're present yeah. on Instagram, you have a website, etc. So how do you decide like what formats are worth engaging on? Like you said, your wife, you know, is like, I, I'm not going to engage on this. You choose to engage on it. What is your, your reason for choosing these avenues? Yeah. Phenomenal question. So my position has actually changed, uh, over the years. I, there was a time, I think, Oh gosh, maybe right as the Hardman podcast was starting. So year, two years ago, I don't know, a year and a half ago. Um, I think I had like 700 Twitter followers. Um, and I, through church affiliation, we were kind of adjacent in a church, uh, doing some church planning, me and Michael Foster, I, you know, got to know Michael really well. Oh yeah. And uh, this is kind of early, even in It's Good to Be a Man. And Michael was like, you know, I, I really think that you should use this. And, and here's how you should use it. Use it to network with other pastors. Use it to um, put ideas out there, get to know other people, that sort of thing. So I was like, okay, you know, I'll try this. Um, so really, you know, Michael was a big part of that. Um, kind of cool, though. Like, it, it has been a big blessing. And one of the, the main ways that I use Twitter is I'll meet people on there. So, you know, Brian Sauvay and Dan Burkholder now go to church with those guys. We've moved to Utah to be a part right. of their church, um, to join them in the work here. I met Dan because Dan was like, Hey, I like some of the things you say on Twitter. Like, can we do a phone call? Sure. Yeah. Cause Michael told me that he was like, Hey, network with people, get to know them. Like mm -hmm. you kind of find out like you're using the enemy radio program to find like other like-minded people. That mm -hmm. honestly, like I, I didn't even, I wouldn't have known they were even out there probably to this day. Right. So that's right. kind of number one use network, find other like-minded people and then build real world connections. Um, the mm -hmm. other thing that like over the years, Brian Sauvé has said this to me, but he was like, listen, today, Twitter is one of the Agoras. It's one of the marketplaces of ideas. Um, and so kind of like Paul and Acts 17 through 19, like going out there and, and preaching to the Athenians. It's, it's sort of that type of thing. And, you know, people will say things like, oh, you're so confrontational on there. Well, yeah, it's a pretty hostile environment, actually, most of the time. Um, and, and I'm really doing something strategic, actually. I'm actually doing like a Gideon type thing where I am trying to poke the idols squarely in the eyes. Um, mm -hmm. That is what I'm trying to do. Like Gideon takes the altar to Baal and they take it in the street. Mm -hmm and they burn it to the ground in front of everybody. So mm -hmm. it's offensive to a lot of the Christians. Those are usually the most hateful people on that. Well, and also like gay Reverend Helens. Um, they're pretty hostile too. Reverend <laughs> Kim. She's, she's my favorite. Um, <laughs> the cat ladies, stuff like that. But so that, that is what we're trying to do um, is engage on there. Uh, I was on uh, Dale Partridge's podcast the other week and he said to me and Brian Sauvé, he was like, I don't know how they haven't canceled you on Twitter. I, I don't know yeah, how you yeah. guys still have uh, platforms. So, you know, as long mm -hmm. as we're there, you, you know, let them kick us off. That's fine. Uh, we'll continue to mm -hmm. use that. And the other thing I would say is there's been a lot of good fruit from it. Um, mm. And it's not just men too. Like there's been a lot of men who reach out and say like, wow, I found your content. It's really changed my life. But a lot mm -hmm. of women, like there's a lot of women mm -hmm. followers who are like, thank God somebody is finally, you know, speaking to this because we want men too. And we want godly femininity. Yeah. Right. How do you know, like how blunt or harsh to be? Is there a limit that you place on yourself? Do you take a step back sometimes and delete things like? Yeah. So I, I think one of the things that um, you, you kind of have to watch. Uh, so 
I, I actually like a lot of Mark Driscoll's early stuff. Um, I know a lot of people would be rubbed, rubbed wrong by that, but Mark was a genius in many ways. He did a lot of good things um, and went too far. Uh, but Mark would always say, um, how dare you? Yeah. How dare you? <laughs> Who the hell do you think you are? How dare you? Um, but Mark would always say, and he was right. He said, how do you know where the line is? Because you cross it. And so I think there's a couple things like, you know, Mark crossed the line and never came back. Like, that's not what we want. Right. We, we don't just want to be um, that jerk that steamrolls people. So what I've done is there's like a handful of people that I trust. And, uh, you know, the, the two closest men to me in my life, uh, Brian Sauvet and Dan Burkholder. Um, there's been several instances where I posted something. I posted something recently. Uh, Samuel Say, actually, uh, on Twitter, too. Mm-hmm. He was like, you know, he, he responded and he was like, brother, this is too far. And, um, you know, I was like, yeah, he's probably right. And then, then I asked Brian about it. And Brian was like, bro, I can't believe you said that. I mean, it's funny and maybe a little true, but um, yeah, probably too far. So it was, you know, basically like a pro Putin comment. I wasn't actually saying Putin was great, but I was just being leery about the people who were, uh, you know, against him. Um, but in that, like in that instance, um, it was pretty public. Like Samuel went on there and he was like, you went too far. Um, and I eventually was like, yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm willing to take this down and, you mm-hmm. know, say that I was wrong about it. I think the challenge is in our day and age, I would rather have the guy that I'm having to say like, whoa, baby, bring it back just a little bit, bring it back. That's actually easier to deal with in today's culture because nobody is even close to that for the most part, mm-hmm. right? Most people are like, to this day, I mean, I get tired of this, but like very prominent evangelical leaders who will contact me privately on Twitter and they will be right. like, hey, I love what you're doing. I could never associate with you in any way whatsoever because it would cost me my very prestigious job. And I'm like, well, here's the reality. We're in this situation because men like you have been cowards and you won't fight. And mm-hmm. we need men who are going to fight when it's inconvenient. It, it's going to, you know, it, at some point it's going to cost you something. I mean, I lost in the last three years. I've lost jobs. Um, contract mm. work, uh, people who literally said to me, yeah, we, uh, we, we had you lined up for a $30,000 contract and then we saw your Twitter. <laughs> oh and, gosh, and that yeah. was strategic too. Like I said, I was like, you know what? I understand why a lot of guys are anonymous. I'm not going to be. Mm-hmm. I want people to know that I stand behind this, that it isn't some, you know, fake manosphere dude who's just, you know, actually a total piece of filth. Like this is a real mm-hmm. person. Real people know me. I'm accountable to real elders in the real world. You, you could, yeah. you know, reach out to me and we could talk. Um, yeah. I, I wanted that. And yeah, it, you know, it's just a matter of, of course, like you're going to, you're going to cross the line. You have good men to call you back. And, uh, you know, Brian Sauvé tells me all the time too. He's like, you know, Eric, not every problem is a nail and you're a hammer. And sometimes we don't need hammers. So like on Twitter, especially that, you know, I'm just working on like being a little bit more patient on there, being a little more, you know, Mm -hmm. don't, don't play the cat ladies every single time. Um, that sort of thing. But, but I, I will say too, like most people, when, when, when we meet in real life, they're like, wow, you're like a normal guy. I just thought (laughs) you're just like a total jerk all the time. No, that's just Twitter, baby. It's just Twitter. (laughs) I heard somebody uh, somebody say 
on a podcast I was listening to that a good day on Twitter is when you make a really mean joke at somebody else and a bad day is when you're the butt of the really mean <laughs> yes. joke and yes. everybody's piling on you. So oh, like, yeah. oh, that's, yeah, that's a great, great platform. So yeah. I have one final question. It's not like amazing or anything. So I grew up in a, and I think Phil did too, a more dispensational yeah. Uh, church background. And so a lot of people in dispensational backgrounds, as you know, are less likely to engage with the culture because like we've heard the term, we've heard the phrase, we're going to hell in a handbasket. Like why try to save this? You know, it's burning down. So how does, it's kind of two parts to this question. You talk about dominion theology, one, yeah. in some of your podcasts and two, how does your eschatology kind of inform how you interact with the culture, how you take dominion, et cetera. I know it's kind of broad, but whatever comes to your mind, give it to us. Well, I should say too, just so that the terms are well-defined that uh -huh. when we say dispensational, we're talking about churches that teach Oh, Things yeah. are just going to keep getting worse and worse. Yeah. The rapture is going to happen. There's going to be a tribulation. Then comes the millennial reign of Christ. And then the final kingdom is ushered in. There's the final judgment and people are the, the sheep and the goats are separated finally. Yeah. Um, and that's not the only eschatological vision, eschatological meaning like the doctrine or study of last things, how the world is going to end. And even our, uh, our crazy woke, leftist um well i can't say brothers uh neighbors they have uh, an eschatology as well and theirs is that their social activism is going to usher usher in the eschaton it's the hegelian dialectic of moving yep. forward forward um and so everybody has an eschatology and it really does inform how you live on a day-to-day -day basis whether you think you're going to be the last generation that ushers in the eschaton or that it's somewhere further in the future, you're a part of it. So with that context, there you go. There's the question. <laughs> That's why we're a team. Yeah. Yeah. It was a really good uh, explanation. Um, and, and really there's kind of a third one, which I would say is fairly prominent in reform circles, which is the uh, radical two kingdoms. Um, it's kind of play out similarly to dispensationalism in that like, it's one form or another of like, no, we shouldn't be transforming the culture in the world. We shouldn't try to do that. Like we're just going to live in this like spiritual realm. Um, and, and we're not trying to transform the culture. So, you, you know, our, our Scott, Scott Clark, uh, Michael Horton, guys like that kind of down in, in your neck of the woods in California, there's a lot of that mm -hmm. teaching uh, as well. And then I think closer to a lot of reform guys would probably be even the a -mill either historic pre-mill or the A-mill position. Uh, A-mill, yeah, basically that, you know, yes, the kingdom is coming, but it's mostly all spiritual until, you know, the final judgment. Um, so yeah, post-mill, what, what are we basically arguing is that Jesus called us to uh, disciple the nations and we will do it. Mm -hmm. And we will be successful in doing it. It won't be easy, um, but we believe that we have a long time to do it. You know, a, a lot of guys will reference things like, Abraham was told 40 generations, mm. um, you know, thousands of years. So if you look at that, you know, we got something like 37,000 years to go. Um, we're young. Doug Wilson will say that we're young in the game. Mm. Uh, fundamentally, how does it change your perspective? Um, we're absolutely the opposite of the dispensational approach. We want to get involved. We want to transform our households, start there, transform our church, transform our community, be working to build Christendom 
on the earth. And we, we expect, you know, one guy said uh, throughout history, I don't remember who it was, but he said the, the story of Christianity is a story of a series of defeats or, or victories disguised as defeats. So we just go from victory to victory, but it's all disguised as, as these defeats. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a, a long time, I, I was not always obviously post-mill because I wasn't a Christian uh, <laughs> even, but and then, you know, coming into the Baptist church, um, and then, and then it really was like, well, we don't polish brass on a sinking ship. You've, you know, you've heard that one a lot. Um, and guys would always tell me, I remember reading a book about Jonathan Edwards and he said, okay, well, we, we know post-mill theology isn't real because World War II. And then you read scripture and you're like, well, that's like saying, well, we know redemptive history is over because judges. Mm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, judges was way worse than right now. It was way worse than, you know, I think Sodom and Gomorrah probably trumps Nazi Germany, mm. honestly. Um, in terms of judgment and destruction and, and horrible, horrible things happening mm-hmm. uh, to humanity because of the judgment. Mm-hmm. So again, we, we, we believe that, um, you know, God's kingdom is coming. It will be cr- progressively greater in scope. And actually, if you look at like the, the church, early church in Acts to now, okay, we started out with like 12 plus 70. So, you know, you Pentecost, you know, what, like a couple thousand Christians, heavily, heavily persecuted by the Roman empire, eventually under Nero. Mm -hmm. And then now the the way you hear dispensationalists tell it, Christianity has been so unsuccessful that now there's billions of Christians worldwide on every continent. And you're like, well, actually that seems like the post mill case. (laughs) Um, It seems like Christianity has actually transformed the world. Christendom, even now, Michael Foster said this, but I would even say in America, people, I really don't like the language. People are like, we're, we're, we're post-Christian. We're not post-Christian. We're apostate. We're an apostate nation. We're a nation whose grandparents were faithful, faithful Christian people, and we have apostatized. Mm -hmm. And so judgment is coming, and we need to be aware of that. But anyway, so I would say um, it it creates a cultural engagement. Um, One of the things we talk a lot about on the King's Hall um, is having a multi-generational legacy view of life, something that that I didn't grow up with, Mm -hmm. but like where you look at your kids and you're like, okay, I believe in the promise of God. The, the, promises is, the promises are to you and your offspring after you, to you and to your generations, you and your families. You see this in Abraham and in Acts chapter 2. And we say, okay, I want to build for the next 500 years. How do I do that? That's a fundamentally different question than like dispensationalism where it's like everything's just rotting let's try to hold yeah. on and persecution's actually good. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's interesting on the dispensational camp because all my life I heard John MacArthur talk about, you know, that whole theology, like hell in a handbasket theology. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, praise God, but like John is changing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're realizing as many, many dispensationalists are, I talked to a lot of these guys, not just John MacArthur, but these guys are starting to realize like, yeah, I'm a dispensationalist, but we need to do something about this. <laughs> Otherwise, this is going to get really ugly. Yeah. And so I think like, I think this is the right moment. Like there's a reason right now that so many young, restless and reform guys are going post mill mm. because y- you look at it and you're like, well, yeah, we have a lot of work in front of us. But the only reason we have such a, a hard moment right now is because for like 150 years, Christians weren't doing that work. You know, Ben Merkel um, out of Moscow, he said it, and, and I think it summarizes everything well. He goes, oh, you're not post-mill, and you're not, you know, 
Pedo Baptist, that's great because the secular left is. Yeah. And they want your kids and they're they're playing for keeps. Mm. So you better get serious about it because that's what they're doing. And guess what? We're here today because they played the long game. You know, we talk about the long, slow march through the institutions. We have to, I think, embrace the Chinese proverb, right? The best time to plant a tree was, you know, 30 years ago. The second best time is now. Mm. We can't, I can't undo what, you know, my parents' generation did. Yeah. But I can start now and we can say, look, I'm just going to have to fight this sucker out. I'm going to have to be that guy on Twitter who's like hated by everybody for saying like painfully obvious things Mm. because one day I want my kids to go to work and not have to give assent to the rainbow flag theology. Ooh, amen. That was good. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think so on a practical level, having grown up in the more dispensational side and being influenced by guys like John Piper. So to John Piper, one of his seminal books, don't waste your life. Don't save up all this yep. money so that you can. That's why, that's why I went to seminary. Yeah. So, so oh, you can wow. spend that the money on being at the beach and having a boat or, or whatever. Instead, you have to give all the money away to world missions because that's what's going to yep. usher in the fulfillment of the Great Commission to then, um, you know, bring the end of the age. And so contrasted with a a uh, post mill view would be like, well, you, yeah, you shouldn't save your whole life living poor. So you can have a lot of money to spend it all on yourself in retirement. You should build something that you can pass on to your children who you have raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and then to pass on to their children and their children. And so all of a sudden, you know, if I say, if I live to be a hundred and my kids get married relatively young and have kids in the same you know, I could actually have a real relationship with my great grandchildren. And then if they did the same thing, all of a sudden, sort of my memory, not to my own glory, but to the glory of God, if I continue to be a faithful Christian until I die. But that now my hundred years is now multiplied in two, so to speak, because that legacy has been passed on. And so the idea that we should be giving every spare penny that we can afford to world missions somewhere else that we don't know those people. I mean, I, Hey, I, I served overseas with crew in another country. I loved the, the atheist French people that I got to minister to the Muslims that, um, you know, are French or were immigrants from, uh, from Africa. And I believe in world missions. I believe that we have a responsibility to to make disciples here and all around the world. But man, look at our backyard. America, the United States has been the greatest sender of missionaries in the history of the world for the last like 100 years. And it's going to go poof if we don't keep our kids and our grandkids. So it, it does make you think like, OK, well, if my goal was just to earn money in order to give away the excess of my paycheck to world missions and then retire with enough to support me and then leave my kids to fend for themselves when I'm retired or, you know, no longer here, you know, that's, that's one thing, or, you know, maybe I invest, I start a business, you know, and those things are kind of, rattling. it's just not what I was, it's not the attitude that I was raised in. It's not the air that you breathe. At most Christian churches, wealth is a is a bad thing. It's not to be pursued. 
Yeah. And then the idea of not just doing that on a business level, but well, what about your local government, your school board, uh, county commissioner, uh, things like that? You know, you have the you're in the kind of churches that I've grown up in. I don't know if there was ever anybody who was in local politics, which says something. You know, I, I've been I'm 34 and I almost almost. Yeah. Oh, not 34. No, I'll be 34 <laughs> at the end of the month. That's right. Um, and I was going to church when my mom was pregnant with me. Right. So I've never like not been in church and I don't know of any local politician who went to my church. What does that say about how we've abandoned? And there, so there were, there were guys that were entrepreneurs that were building legacies, passing things along to their kids, you know, great in the business side, but not in politics and, and really not in culture either. So um, it all kind of goes hand yeah. in hand. That's, I don't know. Yeah. That was the, like when I was in church, um, so similar background, it wasn't crew, but, um, we were saved through campus ministry. Uh, I went to college and just all the, you know, the street preaching that, that somehow worked. I don't know why, but it did. And so, yeah, we got involved with that, read a lot of John Piper. It was like, go send or disobey. Like if you're not heavily, heavily invested in missions, like the only reason you have a job is basically to fund missions. Mm -hmm. And then you mix that with pietism, which was like, basically nothing on earth even really matters. Um, so yeah, then compare that to kind of the post mill vision where it's like, well, if we're going to build something that lasts for 37,000 more years, like we're going to need businesses, schools, churches, a whole network of Christian culture and cultural producing engines. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for a long time, like I was like, well, I, I, you know, media, I didn't want to do media. Cause I was like, well, that's not, that's not like sacred. That's not like Christian. And I was like, Oh, this is really retarded now. Like that was a dumb <laughs> thing to think. Like, of course we need media. Like I was talking to Andrew Sandlin about this. I was like, what do Christians need right now? Like, where is, where's the battle? Where can we win? And he was like media, like, mm -hmm. you know, stuff like we're yeah. doing right now. Like we have this, <laughs> we're on the enemy platform and we're being able to broadcast messages to people far and wide. And you just have to do that stuff and trust it's going to work like leaven. But yeah, it's going to take this whole effort, not just, not just missions. And I, I think that, you know, the, the last thing I'll say about it is, uh, you know, with like John Piper, John Piper changed my life in many, many ways. And I'm so grateful for the man's preaching. Um, he, he kind of red pilled me on reform theology, got me in the door to, to John Owen, but it's like, you lost your son though. Mm. And like the church after him, like they're, they're doing better, but they're in bad shape. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's kind of like what, you know, if you're not aiming for a legacy model, when you don't produce a legacy, don't be surprised. Mm. Right. Like you didn't build for 500 years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, now the thing you spent your whole life and it's like washing away in the sand and uh, the ocean. Mm. And it like, Phil, like that, that's what you're saying. Like, I don't want that. Yeah. I want to, you know, be like in my rocking chair on the porch and my kids are the ones on Twitter or whatever meta platform is existing oh, at that time. I, w I want them to be the ones who are like pushing the ball forward. And they're like those convoys, man, yeah. they're trouble for the enemy. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'll, I'll end it with this, that because it just reminded us, this is my career, right? I'm a, I'm a civil engineer, but my specialty is in soils and foundations. And so what Jesus says at the end yes. of the Sermon on the Mount 
that the house that's built on the sand with its poor foundations isn't going to last against the storm. But through hearing and obeying, hearing and obeying that that daily mm. pattern of putting Jesus commands, the law of God into practice, you build a foundation that's on the rock. And that's what we need right now. We have the opportunity to recover from the, uh, the like the sins and the disobedience or the, the lack of faithfulness of the past, not because we're special, but because God is good and he's doing something mm. in our midst and mm. what he'll do because of conversations like this, because of your ministry, because of what's going to happen with the daily devotions that I do with my, with my boys, you know, before I go to work in the morning, like that's the the daily kind of obedience that is going to build this foundation that, Hey, in 500 years, maybe we really will have uh, a Christian nation. We'll have mm -hmm. our Christian nationalism. Yeah. Amen. So I love that. Yeah. That's so good. On that note, where can people find you? Yeah, absolutely. Easiest place, uh, ericcon.com, E-R-I-C-C-O-N-N.com. You can find me, of course, on Twitter. Uh, when you see the outlaw Josie Wales, uh, you will know that you're at the right place. Although I say now there's actually some clone accounts uh, that uh, you will. That's not me. So I have seen that. Uh, yeah, it's just Eric, E-R-I-C underscore C-O-N-N. Um, and then you can find all the podcasts through my, my personal website. As and well. you have the Hardman podcast and the newest one, the King's Hall. Yeah, that's correct. Thank you for reminding me of that. Um, so we have King's Hall, I think it's kingshall.org. Um, that is a podcast that I do with, uh, Brian Sovey and Dan Burkholder, pastors at Refuge Church in Ogden, Utah. Um, and that is really about, you know, we're talking about Boniface. We're talking about swinging the ax at the cultural idols of the day. Uh, really, a lot of this post-mill vision, like how do you build a culture? Um, how do you have a legacy? All those sorts of things. We talk about that. Uh, Hardman podcast. And then I actually have a third podcast, which is the Wilderness Warrior podcast. Oh, cool. That is a hunting, hunting military warrior slash, um, you know, how to be kind of a hard man, but applying it to, we're, we're basically trying to replace Boy Scouts, oh, honestly, cool. with a lot of stuff awesome. and finding stuff for boys. Um, building stuff in there where it's, you know, sometimes we might talk about gardening. Sometimes we might talk about butchering yeah. meat. Sometimes we might talk about guns, hunting, et cetera. So we kind of cover all that. Dan and I have like 47 boys between the two of us. So, um, <laughs> it's kind of a dad, dad, boy, hunting That's man. Awesome. Podcast cool. arena. That's, yeah. And just so yeah. everyone knows, uh, King's hall podcast, not to be confused with kingdom hall. That will take you to a very different, um, oh, interesting. website, <laughs> um, that, JW. We were dunking on the JWs and we didn't even know it. <laughs> well, when Phil asked, what is it called? He said, I think it's Kingdom Hall. No, it is not Kingdom Hall. No. <laughs> well, thank you so much for yeah, all your time. You. This was so fun for us. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you uh, inviting me on the show. Yeah.